Well, hello and thanks for joining me. I'm just back from London where I had the privilege of attending the inaugural Alliance for Responsible Citizenship Forum. I'll bring you two special interviews from the conference with international guests who are making a real difference in the culture wars. That's Katie Faust, a children's rights activist who is determined to overturn same-sex marriage. And I speak with Harvard history graduate, Julie Hartman, who is a podcaster with the Dennis Prager Prager U organization in California. Also on today's show, I want to address the shocking issue of Muslim hate preachers in Western Sydney. People like me are being dragged through tribunals and human rights commissions for calling out sexualized and gender fluid ideology when it comes to drag queens and their harm of children, and yet a Muslim preacher can call for the killing of Jews and get away with it. What has Australia come to? This week we had the 13th interest rate rise since the Reserve Bank began trying to tame the inflation dragon. It's time for politicians to find another lever to pull in the cost of living crisis gripping our nation. And finally, I'll catch up with ADHTV contributor Kiralee Smith about Harry Potter author JK Rowling's slapdown of a South Australian judge. All that and more, don't touch that dial. What is required when this happens and the society has lost its way is for leaders to arise who have not forgotten the discarded legacy and who love it with all their hearts. So our vision for ARC is to build a community of people of courage and strength who will quite literally rebuild the foundations of our nations. We believe there is a better story and it is one of optimism that sees a future of abundance and opportunity, not scarcity and decline. So ladies and gentlemen, as we open this inaugural ARC conference, we invite you to go on the journey from darkness, fragmentation, division, polarization and intolerance to a better story, one that is rooted in the infinite value of every human being, built on the freedoms of freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and woven together with kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control by a responsible people. And as I'm sure we will hear Jordan Peterson say shortly, welcome aboard the Ark. Well, the inaugural Alliance for Responsible Citizenship Forum held in London last week repudiated the direction our politicians are leading us. It was a privilege of my life to be there and it has filled me with fresh hope. Concluding with a live recital complete with singers and orchestra, orchestra of Did You Hear The People Sing from the musical Les Mis, the arc was a clarion call to rush the guards imposed by our woke elites and escape their totalitarian grip. The conference stood in stark contrast and opposition to the economic and social policy direction pursued by Labor and the coalition. This was for the centre-right conservatives, a foil to the dystopian vision of permacrisis and climate apocalypse preached by the World Economic Forum and the United Nations, from where Australian politicians sadly take their cues on energy, social and environmental policy. The brainchild of Canadian public intellectual Dr Jordan Peterson and organised by UK Baroness Philippa Stroud and former Australian Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson, it warned of nothing short of civilisational collapse unless we change course. Now, if that sounds dramatic, it is. 
The conference heard from philosopher Oz Guinness, who said Western civilization was like a cut flower, and unless it rediscovered and nurtured its Judeo-Christian roots, it would die. But the Ark was careful to say that decline does not have to be inevitable and that it is not too late. While rightly highlighting what's wrong, Ark was no conservative whinge fest. It told a better story, one where we rediscover the love of the ancient paths of our Judeo-Christian heritage, rebuild marriage and family, and unlock the Earth's abundant resources so all can prosper. Expert speakers constructed over three days a vision for the future where public policy allowed parents to be freer to prioritise children's needs, where coal and gas and nuclear energy is used to lift billions more people out of grinding poverty whilst simultaneously improving the natural environment. This vision also fixes the politician-created cost-of-living crisis afflicting working families who live in our suburbs. Now, the myth that economic development um, trashed the environment was completely busted by the expert speakers at ARC. Innovation in agriculture means farmers are producing more food than the world actually needs on less land. Corruption is the only reason people go hungry. Interviewing Professor Stephen Coonan, ARC advisory board member and former Australian Coalition Senator Amanda Stoker asked what should be done in the face of climate alarmism. Coonan's reply was interesting. He said, we should cancel the climate crisis. Now, the irony is that the coalition is wedded to a policy of achieving net zero by 2050. But people before emissions reduction was the refrain of the research presented at ARC, which showed there was no imminent climate catastrophe. At an event on the sidelines of the forum reported by the media, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, who also attended the summit, said net zero by 2050, which, as I said, is coalition policy, was not, in, was not just entirely, sorry, was not just utterly irrationally, but actually impossible. The climate cult will eventually be discredited, Abbott said. I just hope we don't have to endure energy catastrophe before that happens. Well said, Mr Abbott. Now, ARC trod where Western politicians won't in terms of social policy, advocating for children to be provided wherever possible with the love of their mother and father. Marriage, the ARC said, should be at the heart of public policy. Children want two things, Katie Faust of Them Before Us said, their mum and their dad to love them and for their mum and dad to love each other, end quote. Now you'll hear from, uh, more from Katie in just a moment when I play the interview that I conducted with her in London last week. But you see, woke elites in the media and in countries like Australia have typically characterised anyone promoting the social and energy policy views of ARC as homophobes or deniers. Now, that this event was held at all and attended by 1,500 influential leaders from 71 nations, including 150 Australians, is extremely significant. Common sense and social, sorry, common sense, social and economic policy and pride in Western civilization broke out of the constraints of cancel culture in London last week. Whether ARC has a future will depend on whether these leaders who attended have the courage to fight for these ideas in public when they return. The conference has done its part in equipping them with the evidence and with a global community of like-minded people. The rest will be up 
to us. Parties like mine, the Family First Political Party, have been championing these ideas since we were founded. We are committed to the ARC vision for a better story that invokes our Judeo-Christian founding, puts the family at the centre and advocates economic prosperity, knowing that human ingenuity can achieve this in harmony with the environment. As I said, it was a privilege for me to be at ARC and Family First is committed to playing its part in advancing ARC's vision. Well, the ARC conference was packed with heroes of the culture wars and it was great to bump into one of mine, Katie Faust, from the US, who is one of the leaders of the social policy stream at the forum. She played a key role in the unsuccessful fight to protect the definition of marriage in law in both the United States and then she came here to Australia where she helped uh, those of us who were involved in the campaign here. Now, despite losing, Katie is not giving up. Well, it's fantastic to be here at the ARC conference in London, England, and to have run into uh, an old acquaintance, uh, Katie Faust, who helped us in the same-sex marriage campaign back in 2017. You came to Australia, you spoke on Australian media. You had um, there's some context to that, and there's a reason why you came to help us uh, to do with your upbringing. Tell our audience about that. Well, it's interesting because I came to Australia first in 2015, when your MPs were going to vote on the topic of gay marriage. And I felt like I was there mainly to support Melly Fontana, who was going to go mm -hmm. visit all of her MPs and tell them her story. We have a similarity in that she was raised by lesbians. My mom is in a relationship with another woman. My father's always been in my life. Mm. But I understand mm -hmm. a love and an affinity yep. for the gay community, but also the importance of mothers and fathers, mm. right? And that there's absolutely no contradiction between standing firm for traditional marriage because kids need moms and dads yep. and loving people in your life who are gay. So that was my first trip to Australia mm. was in 2015. Sorry, sorry, I didn't realise it was 2015. I keep thinking 2017. You, you're quite right about that. I came that. back in 2017. You did, you did indeed. Yeah. So you played a, a pretty important role for us uh, with multiple trips. And uh, for those who don't know Millie Fontana, um, some of our audience might be familiar. But you're she, a local hero. She is. And uh, it's been great to reconnect with her in recent times. She made quite an impact in the parliament. Mm -hmm. um, now, why is it important that... Uh, a child has both a, a mother and a father. You know, you, you were, and, and Millie would say the same. She was raised by a loving lesbian mother, who she both, who she loved, and yep. I know you would have as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of people think gender diversity isn't such a big deal in raising kids. Why is that not right? Well, so now, you know, back when I came in 2015 and 2017, I was more just a like freelancer. I just mm. want to speak on behalf of kids. Now I run a global nonprofit mm. that defends children's rights to their mother and father. Our website, our book our podcast, it'll give you a deep dive into why kids don't just need caregivers mm. or parents, they need a mother and father, yeah. and whenever possible, their mother and their father. Yes. Why does it matter? Three reasons. Number one, those two people, a child's own biological parents, are statistically the most connected to, invested in, and protective mm. of kids. So don't give me this line of you want kids to be safe and loved, unless you're willing to say, we're going to incentivize a child's mm. married mother and father raising them together. Any other family structure increases the likelihood they'll be abused and yep. neglected. Number two, only the two people responsible for a child's existence, their own mom and dad, mm. grant them their biological identity. It's very hard for children to answer the question, who am I? if they can't answer the question, whose am I? Mm. And Millie talked about this she so did. powerfully, yeah. where she would say, I couldn't place my features. Mm. She said at night she would pull 
the yeah. photo albums down from the shelf and scanned to try to find mm. anybody that looked like yeah. her because it, she didn't just need people to love her she needed to know who she was yeah. and she could never answer that question until she met her dad that's right and I remember her saying that the happiest day of her life yes. was the day that her lesbian mums let her meet her dad that's exactly right mm. and then the third reason is that actually having a male parent and a female mm. parent maximizes child development mm. like men and women are not the same in a lot of regards but especially in the theater of child rearing mm. moms distinctly bring a feminine attribute that dads don't have and it's yep. the same thing dads do things that moms can't do and then further a mother and a father satisfy a child's longing mm. for maternal and paternal love yep. right i've run group chats mm. with kids who have two moms and some of them have a butch mom and a mm. feminine mom. Mm. And I've asked them, have you ever felt like that butch mom with short hair who works on cars, who's more masculine, yeah. satisfied your longing for a father? And they would say no. Mm. They actually wanted to be loved by a man. Why? Because they're human children yeah, and this exactly. is what human, human children want. Yeah, and th that's been something that wasn't a popular view during the same-sex marriage campaign, both in, in our country and in yours. Um, one of the things that really attracted me to this conference here in London, England, and I, and I should have mentioned earlier, you're here because you've been invited by the organisers to help lead the social policy stream and to mm. promote this idea. But I remember hearing Jordan Peterson on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast earlier this year saying that the social policy aspect of ARC mm -hmm. is the married, monogamous, heterosexual family. Uh, I, I was shocked to hear that pleasantly. but. Um, how important is it that we reintroduce this idea back into the public discourse and um, how important is it that ARC is actually you know, beginning this conversation? Yeah, I think that a lot of us in Western countries think, well, this is so seven years ago. Yeah. But it's not. Mm. It was seven years ago, it's today, it's going to be seven years from now, it's going to be, 70, it's going to be 700 years from now. Mm. Because children come from a man and woman, they're advantaged when they're raised by that man and yeah. woman. There's no other institution that unites that man mm. and woman to a child for life other than heterosexual marriage. Yeah. This issue will never go away. It is, do we have the courage to yeah. talk about it and advocate for it or not? Yeah. Jordan Peterson has a little too much close contract with the human world to deny yeah. the reality yeah. that it is monogamous heterosexual marriage that advantages children. Yep, yeah. and, and he would be the first to say, and I know you and I would be the first to say, this is not driven by any animus no. against gay people, far from it. Um, it is about, uh, as you say, through your organization and your new book, it's, it's about putting them before us. Right. Um, why is it then so important that we not give up on the fact that we've lost the definition of marriage in law, both in your country and, and our country, um, Many of my acquaint my colleagues and friends would say the boat has sailed, we're never going to get marriage back. You don't agree with that view, do you? Mm -mm, no. So why does it matter? Because very real children are being harmed. Yeah. That's why it matters. Because what we've seen in your country, in my country, in every of the 20, close to 30 countries that have legalized gay marriage is a child's right to their mother and father cannot coexist with gay marriage. Yeah. Yeah. You either get elevating That's adult right. desires into this institution or you can have mothers and fathers in culture, in law and yeah. technology. So we prioritize the desires of adults when we defined marriage as mm. something that could be genderless. And as a result, we redefined parenthood into a genderless mm. uh, category. Now that's a problem mm. because Kids actually care whether or not mm. they've lost their mother or father. Yeah. And you'll never be able to legislate away a child's longing for their own mm. mom and dad. Mm. So will we respect their rights or not is the real question. 
It's not over. Um, my organization, Them Before Us, is going to start to work to take gra- back marriage ground. We're going to do it unconventionally hmm. because the way that we talked about it in Australia and in the United States um, was failed messaging. We made the case based on religious liberty arguments. We did, yep. Which exist. Yep. But do you know what the world heard is mm. they heard, I see, so if my brother, who's been with his partner for 15 years, if they get married, you're telling me the problem with them having a loving union respected by the state is that you're gonna have to bake a cake that you don't wanna bake? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the worst messaging. When the reality is, if, if we elevate your brother and his significant other getting married, it will legally eradicate a child's right to their mother and father. Kids will lose their mom and dad if you legalize gay marriage. They will be victimized. So we have got to start thinking about it and talking about it differently. And so we're going to work on that. I agree with you. I think that this argument was very much, this this issue is at the heart of the marriage argument. I know in our country, we fought the 2017 campaign on freedom of speech, freedom of religion, radical gender indoctrination of kids at school, which has all, all come true. You were right about everything. You said we, slippery we, slope. We did, yeah. Everyone said you're hysterical. Yep. And let me check, everything's happened. It, it has all happened. Um, we, did, we didn't maximise the arguments about child's rights. It was part of our campaign, but we found that people couldn't grasp that because of the already pre- prevalent breakdown of family anyway, right kids already in single parent homes, so right. people couldn't join the dots. But what we're seeing in our country, and I'm sure in yours, um, the, the same-sex marriage activist project isn't over. Uh, because marriage is a compound right to found and form a family, they are now pushing for law reform in, in Australia for commercial surrogacy. Right. Uh, the very people who were running the gay marriage campaign are still pushing for the prohibition on commercial surrogacy be, mm-hmm. to be lifted. So this is a rental market in women's mm-hmm, wombs right. and a cash market in, in human babies. Right. Um, now, now, you've got pretty liberal surrogacy laws already in America, well, don't you? It's it depends on the state, right? right. It, there's sort of a patchwork going on. We've got some states where it's totally legalized, contracts are enforceable, yeah. some states where there's a few states where there's a ban, a lot where it's just not regulated. Mm. Um, and then it's kind of a toss up about what's going to happen if you need to enforce the contract. Yeah. Um, but everybody needs to understand that everywhere that gay marriage goes, mm. Um, mothers and fathers are considered legally optional. And so mm. we see very quickly, for example, after Taiwan legalized gay marriage, mm. all the big fertility companies rushed in yep. and started making custom order motherless children. I mean, these things always go, you, they make the case that marriage has nothing to yeah, do with Yeah, just say kids. that again, custom ordered yes. motherless children. Custom ordered motherless children. I mean, that's children. a shocking statement. Well, and that's unfortunately- this is, where, this is where the rainbow flag has taken us. This it is into the buying and selling of babies. Mm. It is mm. completely linked. You know, they made the case for gay marriage based on, well, this isn't, this love has is nothing love, to doesn't do with kids. Exactly, right? that, which is a lie. And saying, yeah. because marriage has to do with kids, you have to redefine parenthood, yeah. you have to give us commercial surrogacy, mm-hmm. you have to redefine infertility. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to have subsidized IVF coverage so that we can make yeah. motherless and fatherless children. Um, and yeah, kids are paying the price mm-hmm. because we did not properly define this debate as one related to justice yep. for children. And also women as well, women who uh, are involved in these surrogacy arrangements, um, yeah. that's not something that's not without consequence to them, is it? And you know, it's absolutely not. I think that most of the feminists are split mm. on the issue of mm. surrogacy. You have some that see it as yeah. just a, a matter of work. Yep. A lot of them who see it as the exploitation of women. Yep. Surrogacy has largely been banned across Europe mm. on the grounds that it commercializes women. I personally think it's not strong enough of an argument because very often you'll have an egg seller, Mm. um, an intended mother, and a birth mother who all love what's happening in surrogacy. They've all consented Mm. to that. 
a child will never consent to losing their mother, not their genetic mother, not their birth mother, and they will not consent to a motherless existence. Surrogacy always violates the rights Mm. of kids. So that's a really important reason why we've got to get marriage back to its Mm. proper definition in law. You mentioned you're going to pursue some unorthodox methods. Uh, Can you tell us what they are? Yeah. Overall, we have got to stop talking about husbands and wives, and we have to start talking about mothers and fathers. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we lost the ability to control the debate as it relates to adult commitment and adult bonds. Um, that's fine. We have, but we really have not lost when it comes to moms and dads, at least in the United States. Public opinion is still very much on the side of dads are not optional, moms are not yeah. optional. I mean, when you talk about adult bonds, love is love still reigns. But when you talk about what kids need, most people will say, yeah, kids need a mom, kids need a dad. Um, and that's actually the way to structure law. I mean, what is the public purpose of marriage? In our country, you know, Congress said, at heart, government has an interest in marriage because it has an interest in children. That's the public purpose of marriage. So we have to get back to the place where we are incentivizing adults raising their own children connected to the child's other biological parent. So we are going to work to privilege natural family bonds above what my legal advisor would call state-constructed bonds. Um, and start to build mm. sort of, of an alternative track. And, and uh, you'd be looking then to try and find a pathway to have this uh, taken up to your Supreme Court because this wasn't done democratically in the US at all. It was done through the court by right. fiat of judges. Yep. So you've got a very changed dynamic on your Supreme yeah. Court now. You've got to create a co- some kind of constitutional challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they don't challenge it, fine. We'll just have a, another parallel privileged track for people that are... Um, where we are honoring those natural family bonds. But of course it will be decried as discriminatory yeah. um, and that's fine. Then they will have to argue not based on how, how, the, how much they feel. Hmm. They will have to argue based on the data of do hmm. biological parents advantage children or not. Yeah, and uh, we don't have time to unpack all that, but the research is overwhelming that uh, a child raised by their natural mother and father right. who are in a stable relationship, right. that child has better outcomes on every score. That is incontrovertible. Um, right. So, and, I, and I'll say that as an adoptive yeah, mom, yeah. right? So I'm not diminishing the importance of adoption. Of course. I'm yeah. actually saying that both of these institutions, the natural family and adoption, must be child-centric, mm. right? That both of those have to be child, we have to think both of them as primarily about the child yeah. first. Yes, and, and often people will hear what I've just said and what we're just talking about as an affront to single mothers as well. Um, and we've got to obviously be sensitive to that, but I don't think anyone wants to be a single parent or a single mother or a single father, generally single mothers overwhelmingly. That's not people's first option in life. And so I guess this conference is about how do we create incentives to try and prioritise marriage and family and public policy. And, and what I love about ARC, like you said, mm. they are daring to say what is yes, true. Yes, yeah. And w- the way that Jordan Peterson would frame it, because we had this conversation, is there is a centre. The centre mm. is the ideal married mother-father for life, for the sake mm. of kids. That's the centre. There are always people on the fringe. Mm. Single mothers, people whose marriage breaks down, uh, sometimes mm. due to no fault of mm. one spouse, Um, sometimes people who experience same-sex attraction who Mm. have a hard time getting into the center. And so we must hold the center and be compassionate with people on the fringe. And I think that that's what ARC is doing very well. 
Very good. Well, well, Katie, it's uh, been an absolute thrill to catch up with you again after all these years uh, in this uh, wonderful conference. And we look forward to uh, seeing what you're able to achieve in your country as you keep fighting the good fight. And uh, what comes out of this ARC conference, I think it's going to help shift the conversation in a positive way. So thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, many of you will be familiar with the Dennis Prager organisation and will have watched the famous PragerU videos. It was my privilege to meet one of Dennis Prager's associates at the ARC conference in London last week, Julie Hartman from California. She hosts uh, podcasts uh, with uh, the great Dennis Prager and also is the host of her own. Uh, Julie and I sat down for a chat about the significance of ARC and I also asked for her take on the upcoming US presidential elections. Well, it's fantastic to be here at the ARC conference with uh, Julie Hartman from the Dennis Prager organisation. Julie hosts a podcast with uh, the great Dennis Prager from PragerU, as well as your own podcast. Julia, what do you think is the significance of uh, this event here that's caused you and so many others from all over the world to gather like this at this uh, civilizational moment that we're in? Well, first of all, Lyle, thank you so much for having me on the program. It's a delight to be with you. And it's certainly a delight to be at this conference. We were just speaking before about how unique it is to be at an event that is so unabashedly defensive of Western civilization. And indeed, we are in a civilizational moment. And to see that, you know, obviously, because I'm in America, I know very much about the civilizational moment we're facing in America. But really, we're facing one all over the world where the West is in a steep decline. And to see so many thought leaders and intellectuals here acknowledging that and trying to chart a course forward to change it is very inspiring. What I also appreciate about this conference, to answer your question about what it means, is that I, I feel, and I would venture to say I would speak for most of the attendees here, I feel that I am both learning and growing in, in my principles and in my intellectual roots, but also I'm meeting a lot of new yeah. people. And, it's, and, that's, and that's part of turning the tide, to have uh, allies, I know that's kind of a buzzword now, but to have allies all over the world who are together in this fight across international, across national, excuse me, lines is crucial. No, that's right. And, and of course, Prager, you and Dennis himself have been calling this out for a long time, as yes. probably many of the people that are, are here. But to bring it all together, to coalesce in one place, we've all seen the private jets fly into Davos every year. We've seen them put forward their crazy ideas. Um, this is really, I guess for the first time, getting on the front foot in terms of networking and organisation on a global scale. That's right, and I, I appreciate what you just said about getting on the front foot. So often, we conservatives are on defence, and I think that we need to be more on offence. So do you think, um, we're hearing a lot about having to get back to uh, Judeo-Christian uh, roots. Uh, that's a little bit controversial for some people who are here who perhaps don't share the Jewish or Christian faith. I know Dennis, of course, is one of the world's most famous Jews. Yes. But um, the essence of this is that we can't really save our civilization unless we actually go back and look at what made our civilization great in the first place. How do we bring people along on that journey who agree with the conservative ideas that have been put forward, but uh, perhaps are a bit um, reticent about the religious basis of it? Well, I think that they need to understand that Judeo-Christian values, although they are religious, they are they are the basis of our civilization. And in turn, they're also sort of a-religious. And that if you look at the Ten Commandments, you know, do not steal, do not murder, honor your father and mother. 
again, those are both deep, deeply religious and also a-religious. Ayan Hirsi Ali is one of the speakers at this wonderful conference, and she is is not from the West. She grew up in a, um, a very fundamentalist Muslim society. She spoke about that beautifully. But she said that when she moved away and came to the West, and she's lived sort of all over the place, she said, this is the civilization that I chose. And she said, I don't know if I identify as a Christian. I don't know exactly if I believe in God, but I believe in Judeo-Christian principles. And I think that is the difference. Look at, I mean, being in London, I was just on the tube this morning. It is so diverse. And there are so many people here who come to the West. And as long as they adopt Judeo-Christian values, they don't need to believe in the God of the Torah or the, the Old New Testament, but they have to believe in the principles. And that is the fundamental uh, core of our civilization. And I guess that's the challenge we have at the moment. Um, we, we, we see um, a large chunk of our immigrant population, and certainly here in London and back in Australia, where I'm from, of people from uh, Muslim religion, and we see the conflict going on in Gaza, and the support of that, and this alliance with um, the radical left, our uh, academy, lining up with uh, radical Muslim clerics to support the likes of Hamas. Um, so, so this is part of the civilizational moment we're in. How do we, how do we um, not only combat the poor uh, thinking amongst our, our left, uh, but also our, our wonderful migrants who we want to be part of this culture, who we're open-hearted towards? Boy, that is the essential question, isn't it? Of the conference and of our yeah. time. I, I'd like to offer something that is a lot more small scale, but I think that we underestimate the power of a good example. They have spoken about that a bit at this conference, that the way that you change the world, you know, we hear all these platitudes changing the world, the way you do that is in your own life. And so I think being a, a principled, strong example of a good citizen in your own life reverberates. As corny as that may sound. No, no, it's not corny. I think that's been the power of George Peterson's message over the last five, yes. six years since he's come on. Yes. Seen and of course, he's one of the key inspirations for this conference. Um, Julie, um, where do you see this movement going from here? Uh, I mean, is, is a conversation that's been opened up about um, this personal responsibility, getting back to our Judeo-Christian roots, uh, the idea of abundance, that the world isn't running out of resources, that we're not facing a climate catastrophe, uh, we're taking the climate seriously. So these are important issues that run counter to the political narrative that is in your country and my country. Where does this, this conversation go from things about this conference, as I mentioned before, is meeting people and understanding that we're not alone in our fight. And as, again, trite as it may sound, I think that will empower each of us to go forward and fight to preserve our civilization. So again, you know, it's, it's easy to talk about these things on a large scale. I don't know how on a large scale it would go and it affect Australia or the United yeah. States, but I know on an individual level it will, and individuals comprise the large scale. Yeah, very good. Just before I let you go, um, we heard from to, uh, well, the former Speaker of the uh, U.S. Congress and, uh, and yes. the new incoming speaker, so Kevin yes. McCarthy and uh, Mike yeah. Johnson. Yes. Uh, yes, they both were very impressive. Um, 
help us understand what's going on in US <laughs> politics. <laughs> Well, it was, you mean specifically with the well, speakership? Well, well, that and, and I guess the uh, the presidential election and the whole sure. Trump phenomenon and uh, you know, what, what is going to happen next year? Well, you may know as well as I know what, what will happen. There seems to be all sorts of surprises all of the time. But briefly about the speakership, Speaker Kevin McCarthy was voted out. Yeah. by every single Democrat in the U.S. House and eight Republicans. And, eight Republicans. <laughs> and he, he joked about yeah, that. He yeah. said, well, I didn't know if I could come to London, but now I have some yeah, more time. Right. We It was a little dicey for about 20 days because we, we yeah. didn't have a speaker. And, of course, the terrible pogrom in Israel occurred on October 7th. And, but now we have a speaker, Mike Johnson, and I would say that he is great. So that that, that is a good development. And as far as the presidential election... You know, there's a huge divide, as you very well know, not just between left and right in the United States, but also among the, the right. The left is very unified. You have to give them credit. Unfortunately, they're very unified. The right is not so much. There's the Trump camp and then there's the anti-Trump camp. But you know what's encouraging? Despite that division within the right wing, we have some truly excellent, excellent excuse me, candidates. It's not just Trump. And I was very pleased, mostly, with, with Trump as a president. We have... Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has done an extraordinary job in that state. We have a businessman, Vivek Ramaswamy, who spoke at this conference. Yes, we have Ambassador uh, and former Governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley. We have some really strong, younger members of the party that are coming up, and if they don't lead us in 24, I have faith that they will lead us going forward. It seems like uh, whatever people think of Donald Trump and he's a polarizing figure. Even at this conference, people disagree. They they are, they do, and vehemently. But it seems like um, since he came on the scene, the the policy agenda has shifted to to one where, you know, even what this conference is is discussing, um, you know, we've got a civilised capital, you can't just close down factories and the fire of the state. We heard that very much from Paul Martin yesterday. That was very much, you know, a Trump sort of thing appealing to those forgotten people. Uh, Social policy, Trump was back on the transgender agenda. Yes. Getting back in bed, getting a bit... Closing the border, all of this, all of these sort of things, you know, strong America. There's, there's no disagreement. It's really personalities now, isn't it? Um, the policy agenda of the Republican Party has very much shifted to the policy agenda of the, the Trump movement to a large degree. Yes, and we have to give him enormous credit for that. He was strong and courageous enough to not only speak about the taboo, but to actually, in office do something about it. So, you know, for all of the criticism of him, and of course I have some, he is his own worst enemy. Sometimes you watch him and you just go, stop, stop kicking yourself, you know? But he has fundamentally changed the Republican Party and the conservative movement, not just in the United States, but I think globally. And we, no matter what you think about the man, we have to give him enormous credit for that. God bless him for it. Very well said. Julie, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Thank you. It's always great to speak with Australians. I hope to do so. Come on again soon. Thank you. Very well. Thank you. Other levers besides the blunt stick of home mortgage interest rate rises are needed need to be deployed to relieve Australia's cost of living crisis. It's simply not fair that one third of Australians with home mortgages are forced to do the heavy lifting in bringing inflation down. 
The Melbourne Cup Day rise of 25 basis points will only tip more families into poverty and shut more young couples out of the Australian dream of home ownership. This is a rolling catastrophe for a nation that up until now has provided incredible opportunity for its young and for its migrants. The Albanese government's strategy of letting the Reserve Bank be the bad cop on inflation might be politically smart, but it is deeply unjust. Struggling Australian families are probably not aware that there are many other options for bringing down inflation than slugging them with interest rate rises. Sadly, there is little media focus on these attentions, on these alternatives, my, my apologies. Now, debt-addicted state and federal governments are simply pouring petrol on the fire of inflation by not cutting their spending. The trouble is everyone loves a government handout, but it is not worth the cost of living crisis that is driven by public money being put into the economy. But because, they are, because we have a politically, um, sorry, but because they're politically popular amongst what is sadly an eco economically illiterate population, governments keep spending while home mortgage rate, rates keep rising. Another driver of inflation that could be pulled into line if there was political will would be to immediately end the all-party obsession with reckless net zero energy policies. Electricity and fuel are of course basic necessities of households and businesses. Driving the cost of these essentials through the roof in pursuit of carbon dioxide reductions brings no environmental gain but is in turn a major driver of inflation. The coalition government can't rail against Labor's accelerated windmill and solar panel rollout because they started the taxpayer rivers of gold to the sector through the renewable energy target. It was the coalition, remember, their politicians who put former Prime Minister Scott Morrison on the plane to Glasgow where he signed Australia up to the UN's crazy net zero by 2050 plan. Now sure, Labor is rushing to get there sooner with its even crazier 80% renewables target by 2030, but the coalition remains wedded to the same cancer on your cost of living, death is just slightly slower under them. So as your bank adjusts upwards, your mortgage repayments, know that the inflation crisis which is driving your cost of living is politician-induced. Fixing the problem they created by hiking your interest rates is far from the only pathway to bringing relief. The bloody-minded ideology of elites, along with timid, a timid political class, many of whom know better but are too afraid to speak, is destroying the Australian dream and robbing young families of a future. Well, is Islam a religion of peace? That's the question on all our minds after yet another Western Sydney Muslim preacher called for the killing of Jews at the weekend. Australians are watching with dismay as Islamic preachers side with Hamas barbarism and call for violent jihad against Jews. The silence of Muslim leaders since these calls for Jew killing is deeply disturbing, as is their ongoing inability to condemn Hamas since the barbarous murders, rapes and kidnappings of Jews on October 7. Now, like all Australians, I was shocked to see footage emerge of Brother Ismail at the Al Medina Dawa Centre in Bankstown calling for violent jihad against Jews. To see fresh revelations of yet another preacher at the centre, Abu Al Sayyid, 
Quoting Islamic scripture calling for Jew killing is truly shocking and it's unbecoming of civilised people. The Australian newspaper reported Abu al-Sayed saying this, Towards the end of times when the Muslims will be fighting the Jews, the trees will speak, al-Sayed said, citing Islamic scripture and parables. He went on to say, they will say, O Muslim, there is a Yahud, that's Arabic for Jew, behind me, come and kill him. Now, this is uncivilised and un-Australian behaviour. A survey of the homepage of the Australian National Imams Council reveals no condemnation of Hamas terrorism, but rather support of Hamas propaganda, including the discredited claim that an Israeli airstrike targeted the Al-Ahali Baptist Hospital in Gaza. The inability of the Imams Council to show empathy with Australia's Jewish community following the barbarous slaughter of October 7 is wrong. I support freedom of speech, including the right to criticise Israel's prosecution of the war against Hamas. However, incitement to violence is where free speech should be limited and, uh, and New South Wales police should be arresting the Western Sydney preachers for breaches of hate speech laws. I'm certainly not anti-immigration at all, but all immigrants need to join Team Australia if we are to have social cohesion in this nation. It's ridiculous when people like me are being sued under hate speech laws for saying things like sexualised and gender fluid drag queens are dangerous role models for children, which they are, but a Western Sydney Muslim hate preacher can get away with calling for the killing of Jews. Now, it's hard to fathom the barbarity of what occurred on October 7 in Israel. Even now, the full extent is still being uncovered, piece by bloody piece. What kind of people break into homes and massacre families in the most brutal of ways imaginable? The most heinous surely are the accounts of what was done to the most innocent among us, children and babies. Babies in ovens, children dismembered, and whole families tied together and burned alive. These are just some of the atrocities. What could drive any person, let alone many thousands of Hamas fighters, to inflict such cruelty on anybody, let alone babies? The only, one, the, the only way one can surely make any sense of it is to realise that these perpetrators have been so steeped in hateful ideology against Jews for most likely the whole of their lives, they have become hardened to the humanity of Jews, including these precious little ones before their very eyes. Dehumanising people has no good results. It will always deliver brutality and death for its victims. Unless we console ourselves with the knowledge that these things are happening in lands far, far away, we will do well to remember that we also live in a country where one group of people have been dehumanised and fatally brutalised now for far too many decades. Their deaths are done behind closed doors, in clean rooms, by healthcare professionals. They die by poisoning, dismemberment, suffocation, and only God knows how else. They receive no pain relief while they are brutalised and any lucky survivors are denied even basic life-saving care, which leaves them gasping for breath until they take their last, however long that takes. 
there is no body count, no funerals, and few champions, despairingly few when it comes to our parliaments. In our country, their deaths are defined as healthcare. How do we make sense of this? Have the perpetrators of this carnage and those who support it also been blinded by wrong ideology? How is it possible to not recognise the humanity and preciousness of these little ones? While we continue to hear news from Israel and dedicate ourselves to pray for them and the innocent victims everywhere, let us also pray and act to end the brutality happening in our own suburbs and cities, that is, abortion. It's why I'm 100% behind Senators Alex Antic, Ralph Babette and Matt Canavan as they push their bill to require medical care to be rendered to babies born alive after botched abortions. We've talked about that before on this program. The dehumanisation and massacre of innocents on our own shores cannot be allowed to continue unimpeded. Well, that's it for this week. It's been great to have your company. To keep up with what's going on during the week, you can follow me on X, that's formerly Twitter, at Lyle Shelton. There's plenty of regular political commentary posted on the Family First website, familyfirstparty.org.au. Now, don't forget to make ADH TV your go-to for conservative opinion and analysis, including from the great Alan Jones, Fred Paul, Nick Cater, Daisy Cousins, and a galaxy of other conservative stars. I'll be back right here on ADH TV next week. Until then, keep speaking up.